Hello, and welcome back to the Reading Club. Today, we'll be picking back up where we left on Tuesdays with Mori. First, I'd like to apologize to my audience as I had to take a certain leave of absence due to my personal life, but I will try to have these readings out once every week. Um, going straight in, a brief summary from last time. We left off with Mitch's first Tuesday with Mori. The first few chapters covered Mori's current physical state in depth as his body struggled against ALS, which had taken over nearly every aspect of his life. Mitch had not been able to keep in touch with Mori all these years, but overhearing Mori's name while flipping through the TV, Mitch is finally reunited with his old professor, and just as they had used to, the lessons resumed where they left off 16 years ago. The two would meet every Tuesday to discuss life, love, and what it means to be human, and finally death. So let's get into part two of Tuesdays with Mori. Chapter 9 The second Tuesday, we talk about feeling sorry for yourself. I came back the next Tuesday, and for many Tuesdays that followed. I looked forward to these visits more than one would think, considering I was flying 700 miles to sit alongside a dying man. But I seemed to slip into a time warp when I visited Mori, and I liked myself better when I was there. I no longer rented a cellular phone for the rise from the airport. Let them wait, I told myself, mimicking Maury. The newspaper situation in Detroit had not improved. In fact, it had grown increasingly insane, with nasty confrontations between picketers and replacement workers, people arrested, beaten, lying in the street in front of delivery trucks. In light of this, my visits with Maury felt like a cleansing rinse of human kindness. We talked about life and we talked about love. We talked about one of Maury's favorite subjects, compassion, and why our society has such a shortage of it. Before my third visit, I stopped at a market called Bread and Circus. I had seen their bags in Maury's house and figured he must like the food there, and I loaded up with plastic containers from their fresh food takeaway things like vermicelli with vegetables and carrot soup and baklava. When I entered Maury's study, I lifted the bags as if I just robbed the bank. Food man, I bellowed. Maury rolled his eyes and smiled. Meanwhile, I looked for signs of the disease's progression. His fingers worked well enough to write with a pencil or hold up his glasses, but he could not lift his arms much higher than his chest. He was spending less and less time in the kitchen or living room, and more in his study, where he had a large reclining chair set up with pillows, blankets, and specially cut pieces of foam rubber that held his feet and gave support to his withered legs. He kept the bell near his side, and when his head needed adjusting, or he had to go on the commode as he referred to it, he would shake the bell, and Connie, Tony, Bertha, or Amy, his small army of home care workers would come in. It wasn't always easy for him to lift the bell, and he got frustrated when he couldn't make it work. I asked Maury if he felt sorry for himself. Sometimes in the morning, he said, that's when I mourn, 
I feel around my body, I move my fingers and my hands, whatever I can still move, and I mourn what I've lost. I mourn the slow, insidious way in which I'm dying, but then I stop mourning. Just like that, I give myself a good cry if I need it, but then I concentrate on all the good things still in my life, on the people who are coming to see me, on the stories I'm going to hear, on you if it's Tuesday, because we're Tuesday people. I grinned, Tuesday people. Mitch, I don't allow myself any more self-pity than that. A little each morning, a few tears, and that's all. I thought about all the people I knew who spent many of their waking hours feeling sorry for themselves. How useful it would be to put a daily limit on self-pity. Just a few tearful minutes, then on with the day. And if Mori could do it, it was such a horrible disease. It's only horrible if you see it that way, Mori said. It's horrible to watch my body slowly wilt away to nothing, but it's also wonderful because of all the time I get to say goodbye. He smiled. Not everyone is so lucky. I studied him in his chair, unable to stand, to wash, to pull on his pants. Lucky? Did he really say lucky? During a break, when Maury had to use the bathroom, I leafed through the Boston newspaper that sat near his chair. There was a story about a small timber town where two teenage girls tortured and killed a 73-year-old man who had befriended them, then threw a party in his trailer home and showed off the corpse. There was another story about the upcoming trial of a straight man who killed a gay man after the latter had gone on a TV talk show and said he had a crush on him. I put the paper away. Maury was rolled back in smiling, as always and Connie went to lift him from the wheelchair to the recliner. You want me to do that, I asked. There was a momentary silence, and I'm not even sure why I offered. But Maury looked at Connie and said, can you show him how to do it? Sure, said Connie. Following her instructions, I leaned over, locked my forearms under Maury's armpits, and hooked him toward me, as if lifting a large log from underneath. Then I straightened up, hoisting him as I rose. Normally, when you lift someone, you expect their arms to tighten around your grip, but Maury could not do this. He was mostly dead weight, and I felt his head bounce softly on my shoulder and his body sag against me like a big, damp loaf. Ah, he softly groaned. I gotcha, I gotcha, I said. Holding him like that moved me in a way I cannot describe, except to say I felt the seeds of death inside his shriveling frame. And as I laid him in his chair, adjusting his head on the pillows, I had the coldest realization that our time was running out, and I had to do something. It is my junior year, 1978, when disco and Rocky movies are the cultural rage. We are in an unusual sociology class at Brandeis, something Maury calls group process. Each week, we study the ways in which the students in the group interact with one another how they respond to anger, jealousy, attention. We are human lab rats. More often than not, someone ends up crying. I refer to it as a touchy-feely course. Maury says I should be more open-minded. On this day, Maury says he has an exercise for us to try. We are to stand facing away from our classmates and fall backward, relying on another student to catch us. Most of us are uncomfortable with this and we cannot let go for more than a few inches before stopping ourselves. We laugh in embarrassment. Finally, one student, 
a thin, quiet, dark-haired girl whom I notice almost always wears bulky white fisherman sweaters, crosses her arms over her chest and closes her eyes, leans back and does not flinch, like one of those Lipton tea commercials where the model splashes into the pool. For a moment, I am sure she is going to thump on the floor. At the last instant, her assigned partner grabs her head and shoulders and yanks her up harshly. Whoa! Several students yell, some clap. Mori finally smiles. You see, he says to the girl, you closed your eyes. That was the difference. Sometimes, you cannot believe what you see. You have to believe what you feel. And if you are ever going to have other people trust you, you must feel that you can trust them too. Even when you're in the dark. Even when you're falling. Chapter 10 The third Tuesday, we talk about regrets. The next Tuesday, I arrive with the normal bags of food, pasta with corn, potato salad, apple cobbler, and something else, a Sony tape recorder. I want to remember what we talk about, I told Maury. I want to have your voice so I can listen to it later. When I'm dead, don't say that, he laughed. Mitch, I'm going to die, and sooner, not later. He regarded the new machine. So big, he said. I felt intrusive, as reporters often do, and I began to think that a tape machine between two people who were supposedly friends was a foreign object, an artificial ear. With all the people clamoring for his time, perhaps I was trying to take too much away from these Tuesdays. Listen, I said picking up the recorder. We don't have to use this. If it makes you uncomfortable, he stopped me wagged a finger, and hooked his glasses off his nose, letting them dangle on the string around his neck. He looked me square in the eye. Put it down, he said. I put it down. Mitch, he continued softly now, you don't understand. I want to tell you about my life. I want to tell you before I can't tell you anymore. His voice dropped to a whisper. I want someone to hear my story. Will you? I nodded. We sat quietly for a moment. So, he said. Is it turned on? Now, the truth is, that tape recorder was more than nostalgia. I was losing Maury. We were all losing Maury. His family, his friends, his ex-students, his fellow professors, his pals from the political discussion groups that he loved so much, his former dance partners, all of us. And I suppose tapes, like photographs and videos, are a desperate attempt to steal something from death's suitcase. But it was also becoming clear to me, through his courage, his humor, his patience, and his openness, that Mori was looking at life from some very different place than anyone else I knew, a healthier place, a more sensible place, and he was about to die. If some mystical clarity of thought came when you looked death in the eye, then I knew Mori wanted to share it, and I wanted to remember it for as long as I could. The first time I saw Mori on Nightline, I wondered what regrets he had once he knew his death was imminent. Did he lament his lost friends? Would he have done much differently? Selfishly, I wondered if I were in his shoes, would I be consumed with sad thoughts of all that I had missed? Would I regret the secrets I had kept hidden? When I mentioned this to Mori, he nodded. It's what everyone worries about, isn't it? What if today were my last day on earth? He studied my face, and perhaps he saw an ambivalence about my own choices. 
I had this vision of me keeling over my desk one day, halfway through a story, my editor snatching the copy even as the medics carried my body away. Mitch? Maury said. I shook my head and said nothing, but Maury picked up on my hesitation. Mitch, he said, the culture doesn't encourage you to think about such things until you're about to die. We're so wrapped up with egotistical things, career, family, having enough money, meeting the mortgage, getting a new car, fixing the radiator when it breaks. We're involved in trillions of little acts just to keep going. So we don't get into the habit of standing back and looking at our lives and saying, is this all? Is this all I want? Is something missing? He paused. You need someone to probe you in that direction. It won't just happen automatically. I knew what he was saying. We all need teachers in our lives. And mine was sitting in front of me. Fine, I figured. If I was to be the student, then I would be as good a student as I could be. On the plane ride home that day, I made a small list on a yellow legal pad, issues and questions that we all grapple with. From happiness, to aging, to having children, to death. Of course, there were a million self-help books on these subjects, and plenty of cable TV shows, and $90 per hour consultation sessions. America had become the Persian bazaar of self-help. But there still seemed to be no clear answers. Do you take care of others, or take care of your inner child? Return to traditional values, or reject tradition as useless? Seek success, or seek simplicity? Just say no, or just do it. All I knew was this. Maury, my old professor, wasn't in the self-help business. He was standing on the tracks, listening to the desk locomotive whistle, and he was very clear about the important things in life. I wanted that clarity. Every confused and tortured soul I knew wanted that clarity. Ask me anything, Maury always said, so I wrote this list. Death, fear, aging, greed, marriage, family, society, forgiveness, a meaningful life. The list was in my bag when I returned to West Newton for the fourth time a Tuesday in late August when the air conditioning at the Logan Airport terminal was not working and people fanned themselves and wiped sweat angrily from their foreheads and every face I saw looked ready to kill somebody. By the start of my senior year, I have taken so many sociology classes, I am only a few credits shy of a degree. Maury suggests I try an honors thesis. Me? I ask. What would I write about? What interests you, he says. We bat it back and forth until we finally settle on, of all things, sports. I begin a year-long project on how football in America has become ritualistic, almost a religion, an opiate for the masses. I have no idea that this is training for my future career. I only know it gives me another once-a-week session with Maury. And with his help, by spring, I have a 112-page thesis, researched, footnoted, documented, and neatly bound in black leather. I show it to Maury with the pride of a little leaguer rounding the bases on his first home run. Congratulations, Maury says. I grin as he leafs through it, and I glance around his office. The shelves of books, the hardwood floor, the throw rug, the couch. I think to myself that I have sat just about everywhere there is to sit in this room. I don't know, Mitch, Maury muses, adjusting his glasses as he reads. With work like this, 
we may have to get you back here for grad school. Yeah, right, I say. I snicker. But the idea is momentarily appealing. Part of me is scared of leaving school. Part of me wants to go desperately. Tension of opposites. I watch Mori as he reads my thesis and wonder what the big world will be like out there. Chapter 11, The Audiovisual, Part 2 The Nightline show had done a follow-up story on Mori, partly because the reception for the first show had been so strong. This time, when the cameraman and producers come through the door, they already felt like family, and Kobel himself was noticeably warmer. There was no feeling out process, no interview before the interview. As warm-up, Kobel and Mori exchanged stories about their childhood backgrounds. Kobel spoke of growing up in England, and Mori spoke of growing up in the Bronx. Mori wore a long sleeve blue shirt. He was almost always chilly, even when it was 90 degrees outside. But Kobel removed his jacket and did their interview in shirt and tie. It was as if Mori was breaking him down, one layer at a time. You look fine, Kobel said when the tape began to roll. That's what everybody tells me, Mori said. You sound fine. That's what everybody tells me. So how do you know things are going downhill? Maury sighed. Nobody can know it but me, Ted, but I know it. And as he spoke, it became obvious. He was not waving his hands to make a point as freely as he had in their first conversation. He had trouble pronouncing certain words. The L sound seemed to get caught in his throat. In a few more months, he might no longer speak at all. Here's how my emotions go, Mori told Kopel. When I have people and friends here, I'm very up. The loving relationships maintain me, but there are days when I am depressed. Let me not deceive you. I see certain things going and I feel a sense of dread. What am I going to do without my hands? What happens when I can't speak? Swallowing, I don't care so much about. So they feed me through a tube. So what? But my voice, my hands... They're such an essential part of me. I talk with my voice. I gesture with my hands. This is how I give to people. How will you give when you can no longer speak? Cope asked. Maury shrugged. Maybe I'll have everyone ask me yes or no questions. It was such a simple answer that Cope had to smile. He asked Maury about silence. He mentioned a dear friend Maury had. Maury Stein. Who had first sent Maury's aphorisms to the Boston Globe. They had been together at Brandeis since the early 60s. Now Stein was going deaf. Kopel imagined the two men together one day, one unable to speak, the other unable to hear. What would that be like? We will hold hands, Maury said, and there will be a lot of love passing between us, Ted. We've had 35 years of friendship. You don't need speech or hearing to feel that. Before the show ended, Maury read Kopel one of the letters he'd received. Since the first Nightline program, there had been a great deal of mail. One particular letter came from a school teacher in Pennsylvania who taught a special class of nine children. Every child in the class has suffered the death of a parent. Here's what I sent her back, Maury told Kopel, perching his glasses gingerly on his nose and ears. Dear Barbara, I was very moved by your letter. I feel the work you have done with the children who have lost a parent is very important. I also lost a parent at an early age. Suddenly, with the camera still humming, Mori adjusted the glasses. He stopped, bit his lip, and began to choke up. Tears fell down his nose. 
I lost my mother when I was a child, and it was quite a blow to me. I wish I'd had a group like yours, where I would have been able to talk about my sorrows. I would have joined your group because... His voice cracked. Because I was so lonely. Mori, Copel said. That was 70 years ago your mother died. The pain still goes on? You bet, Mori whispered. Chapter 12, The Professor. He was eight years old. A telegram came from the hospital, and since his father, a Russian immigrant, could not read English, Mori had to break the news, reading his mother's death notice like a student in front of the class. We regret to inform you, he began. On the morning of the funeral, Mori's relatives came down the steps of his tenement building on the poor lower east side of Manhattan. The men wore dark suits, the women wore veils, the kids in the neighborhood were going off to school, and as they passed, Mori looked down, ashamed that his classmates would see him this way. One of his aunts, a heavy-set woman, grabbed Mori and began to wail, What will you do without your mother? What will become of you? Mori burst into tears. His classmates ran away. At the cemetery, Mori watched as they shoveled dirt into his mother's grave. He tried to recall the tender moments they had shared when she was alive. She had operated a candy store until she got sick, after which she mostly slept or sat by the window looking frail and weak. Sometimes she would yell out for her son to get her some medicine, and young Mori playing stickball in the street would pretend he did not hear her. In his mind, he believed he could make the illness go away by ignoring it. How else can a child confront death? Mori's father, whom everyone called Charlie, had come to America to escape the Russian army. He worked in the fur business, but was constantly out of a job, uneducated and barely able to speak English. He was terribly poor, and his family was on public assistance much of the time. Their apartment was a dark, cramped, depressing place behind the candy store. They had no luxuries, no car. Sometimes to make money, Mori and his younger brother David would wash porch steps together for a nickel. After their mother's death, the two boys were sent off to a small hotel in the Connecticut woods where several families shared a large cabin and a communal kitchen. The fresh air might be good for the children, the relatives thought. Mori and David had never seen so much greenery, and they ran and played in the fields. One night after dinner, they went for a walk and it began to rain. Rather than come inside, they splashed around for hours. The next morning when they woke, Mori hopped out of bed. Come on, he said to his brother, get up. I can't. What do you mean? David's face was panicked. I, I can't move. He had polio. Of course, the rain did not cause this, but a child Maury's age could not understand that. For a long time, as his brother was taken back and forth to a special medical home and was forced to wear braces on his legs, which left him limping, Maury felt responsible. So in the mornings, he went to synagogue by himself because his father was not a religious man, and he stood among the swaying men in their long black coats, and he asked God to take care of his dead mother and his sick brother. And in the afternoons, he stood at the bottom of the subway steps and hawked magazines, turning whatever money he made over to his family to buy food. In the evenings, he watched his father eat in silence, hoping for, but never getting, a show of affection, communication, warmth. At nine years old, he felt as if the weight of a mountain were on his shoulders. But a saving embrace came into Maury's life the following year. 
his new stepmother, Ava. She was a short Romanian immigrant with plain features, curly brown hair, and the energy of two women. She had a glow that warmed the otherwise murky atmosphere his father created. She talked when her new husband was silent. She sang songs to the children at night. Mori took comfort in her soothing voice, her school lessons, her strong character. When his brother returned from the medical home, still wearing the leg braces from the polio, the two of them shared a rollaway bed in the kitchen of their apartment, and Ava would kiss them goodnight. Mori waited on those kisses like a puppy waits on milk, and he felt deep down that he had a mother again. There was no escaping their poverty, however. They lived now in the Bronx in a one-bedroom apartment in a red brick building on Tremont Avenue, next to an Italian beer garden where the old men played bocce on summer evenings. Because of the depression, Maury's father found even less work in the fur business. Sometimes, when the family sat at the dinner table, all Ava could put out was bread. What else is there? David would ask. Nothing else, she would answer. When she tucked Maury and David into bed, she would sing to them in Yiddish. Even the songs were sad and poor. There was one about a girl trying to sell her cigarettes. Please buy my cigarettes. They are dry, not wet by rain. Take pity on me, take pity on me. Still, despite their circumstances, Mori was taught to love and to care and to learn. Ava would accept nothing less than excellence in school because she saw education as the only antidote to their poverty. She herself went to night school to improve her English. Mori's love for education was hatched in her arms. He studied at night by the lamp at the kitchen table, and in the mornings he would go to synagogue to say Kaddish a memorial prayer for the dead for his mother. He did this to keep her memory alive. Incredibly, Maury had been told by his father never to talk about her. Charlie wanted young David to think Ava was his natural mother. It was a terrible burden to Maury. For years, the only evidence Maury had of his mother was a telegram announcing her death. He had hidden it the day it arrived. He would keep it the rest of his life. When Maury was a teenager, his father took him to a fur factory where he worked. This was during the depression. The idea was to get Maury a job. He entered the factory and immediately felt as if the walls were had closed in all around him. The room was dark and hot, the windows covered with filth, and the machines were packed tightly together, churning like train wheels. The fur hairs were flying, creating a thickened air, and the workers sewing the pelts together were bent over their needles as the boss marched up and down the rows, screaming for them to go faster. Maury could barely breathe. He stood next to his father, frozen with fear, hoping the boss wouldn't scream at him too. During lunch break, his father took Maury to the boss and pushed him in front of him, asking if there was any work for his son. But there was barely enough work for the adult laborers, and no one was giving it up. This for Maury was a blessing. He hated the place. He made another vow that he kept to the end of his life. He would never do any work that exploited someone else and he would never allow himself to make money off the sweat of others. What will you do? Ava would ask him. I don't know, he would say. He ruled out law because he didn't like lawyers, and he ruled out medicine because he couldn't take the sight of blood. What will you do? It was only through default that the best professor I ever had became a teacher. A quote by Henry Adams. A teacher affects eternity. He can never tell where his influence stops. Chapter 13, the fourth Tuesday, we talk about death. Let's begin with this idea, Maury said. 
Everyone knows they're going to die, but nobody believes it. He was in a business-like mood this Tuesday. The subject was death. The first item on my list. Before I arrived, Moria scribbled a few notes on small white pieces of paper so that he wouldn't forget. His shaky handwriting was now indecipherable to everyone but him. It was almost Labor Day, and through the office window, I could see the spinach-colored hedges of the backyard and hear the yells of children playing down the street, their last week of freedom before school began. Back in Detroit, the newspaper strikers were gearing up for a huge holiday demonstration to show the solidarity of unions against management. On the plane ride in, I had read about a woman who had shot her husband and two daughters as they lay sleeping, claiming she was protecting them from the bad people. In California, the lawyers in the O.J. Simpson trial were becoming huge celebrities. Here in Maury's office, life went on one precious day at a time. Now we sat together, a few feet from the newest edition of the house, an oxygen machine. It was small and portable, about knee-high. On some nights, when he couldn't get enough air to swallow, Maury attached a long plastic tubing to his nose, clamping on his nostrils like a leech. I hated the idea of Maury connected to a machine of any kind, and I tried not to look at it as Maury spoke. Everyone knows they're going to die, he said again, but nobody believes it. If we did, we would do things differently. So we kid ourselves about death, I said. Yes, but there's a better approach. To know you're going to die and to be prepared for it at any time, that's better. That way, you can actually be more involved in your life while you're living. How can you ever be prepared to die? Do what the Buddhists do. Every day, have a little bird on your shoulder that asks, is today the day? Am I ready? Am I doing all I need to do? Am I being the person I want to be? He turned his head to his shoulder as if the bird were there now. Is today the day I die? He said. Mori borrowed freely from all religions. He was born Jewish, but he became an agnostic when he was a teenager, partly because of all that had happened to him as a child. He enjoyed some of the philosophies of Buddhism and Christianity, and he still felt at home culturally in Judaism. He was a religious mutt, which made him even more open to the students he taught over the years. And the things he was saying in his final months on earth seemed to transcend all religious differences. Death has a way of doing that. The truth is, Mitch, he said, once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. I nodded. I'm going to say it again, he said. Once you learn how to die, you learn how to live. He smiled, and I realized what he was doing. He was making sure I absorbed this point, without embarrassing me by asking. It was part of what made him a good teacher. Did you think much about death before you got sick, I asked. No, Maury smiled. I was like everyone else. I once told a friend of mine in a moment of exuberance, I'm going to be the healthiest old man you've ever met. How old were you? In my 60s. So you were optimistic. Why not? Like I said, no one really believes they're going to die. But everyone knows someone who has died, I said. Why is it so hard to think about dying? Because, Maury continued, most of us all walk around as if we're sleepwalking. We really don't experience the world fully because we're half asleep doing things we automatically think we have to do. And facing death changes all that? Oh yes. You strip away all that stuff and you focus on the essentials. When you realize you are going to die, you see everything much differently. He sighed. <sighs> learn how to die and you learn how to live. I noticed that he quivered now when he moved his hands. 
His glasses hung around his neck, and when he lifted them to his eyes, they slid around his temples as if he were trying to put them on someone else in the dark. I reached over to help guide them onto his ears. Thank you, Mori whispered. He smiled when my hand brushed up against his head. The slightest human contact was immediate joy. Mitch, can I tell you something? Of course, I said. You might not like it. Uh, why not? Well, the truth is, if you really listen to the bird on your shoulder, if you accept that you can die at any time, then you might not be as ambitious as you are. I forced a small grin. The things you spend so much time on, all this work you do, might not seem as important. You might have to make room for some more spiritual things. Spiritual things? <laughs> you hate that word, don't you? Spiritual. You think it's touchy-feely stuff. Well, I said. He tried to wink. A bad try. And I broke down and laughed. Mitch, he said laughing along. Even I don't know what spiritual development really means. But I do know we're deficient in some way. We're too involved in materialistic things and they don't satisfy us. The loving relationships we have, the universe around us, we take these things for granted. He nodded towards the window with the sunshine streaming in. You see that? You can go out there. Outside anytime. You can run up and down the block and go crazy. I can't do that. I can't go out. I can't run. I can't be out there without fear of getting sick. But you know what? I appreciate that window more than you do. Appreciate it? Yes. I look out that window every day. I notice the change in the trees, how strong the wind is blowing. It's as if I can see time actually passing through the window pane. Because I know my time is almost done. I am drawn to nature like I'm seeing it for the first time. He stopped. And for a moment, we both just looked out the window. I tried to see what he saw. I tried to see time and seasons, my life passing in slow motion. Mori dropped his head slightly and curled it towards his shoulder. Is it today, little bird? he asked. Is it today? Letters from around the world kept coming to Mori thanks to the nightline appearances. He would sit when he was up to it and dictate the responses to friends and family who gathered for their letter writing sessions. One Sunday, when his sons, Rob and John, were home, they all gathered in the living room. Mori sat in his wheelchair, his skinny legs under a blanket. When he got cold, one of his helpers draped a nylon jacket over his shoulders. What's the first letter? Maury said. A colleague read a note from a woman named Nancy, who had lost her mother to ALS. She wrote to say how much she had suffered through the loss and how she knew that Maury must be suffering too. All right, Maury said when the reading was complete. He shut his eyes. Let's start by saying, Dear Nancy, you touched me very much with your story about your mother, and I understand what you went through. There is sadness and suffering on both parts. Grieving has been good for me, and I hope it has been good for you also. You might want to change the last line, Rob said. Marie thought for a second, then said, you're right. How about, I hope you can find the healing power in grieving. Is that better? Rob nodded. Add, thank you, Maury, Maury said. Another letter was read from a woman named Jane, who was thanking him for his inspiration on the Nightline program. She referred to him as a prophet. That's a very high compliment, said a colleague. A prophet. Maury made a face. He obviously didn't agree with the assessment. Let's thank her for the high praise and tell her I'm glad my words meant something to her. And don't forget to sign, thank you, Maury. 
There was a letter from a man in England who had lost his mother and asked Maury to help him contact her through the spiritual world. There was a letter from a couple who wanted to drive to Boston to meet him. There was a long letter from a former graduate student who wrote about her life after the university. It told of a murder-suicide and three stillborn births. It told of a mother who died from ALS. It expressed fear that she, the daughter, would also contract the disease. It went on and on, two pages, three pages, four pages. Maury sat through the long, grim tale. When it was finally finished, he said softly, Well, what do we answer? The group was quiet. Finally, Rob said, How about thanks for your long letter? Everyone laughed. Maury looked at his son and beamed. The newspaper near his chair has a photo of a Boston baseball player who is smiling after pitching a shutout. Of all the diseases, I think to myself, Maury gets one named after an athlete. You remember Luke Gehrig, I ask? I remember him in the stadium saying goodbye. So you remember the famous line? Which one? Come on, Lou Gehrig. Pride of the Yankees? The speech that echoes over the loudspeakers? Uh, remind me, Maury says. Do the speech. Through the open window, I hear the sound of a garbage truck. Although it is hot, Maury is wearing long sleeves, with a blanket over his legs, his skin pale. The disease owns him. I raise my voice and do the Gehrig imitation, where the words bounce off the stadium walls. Today, I feel like the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Maury closes his eyes and nods slowly. Yeah, well, I didn't say that. I am keeping it a little bit shorter this week, so that is it for part two of Tuesdays with Maury, but I will be back next week with part three. I hope to see you soon. Till then. I hope you guys all have a great week. Bye-bye.